Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Fast Talk. This is 116. It's a Q&A episode, and it is my pleasure to introduce a second coach to the show today. We've got Kristen Legan with us. We were really kind of sick of hearing Trevor answer all the questions. We knew we needed some other voices, more perspective. Formerly a pro triathlete? Is that how you would describe yourself or semi-pro? Yeah, I mean, I race professionally. I don't know if I could consider myself a full-time pro. I was still working at the time, so yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And a longtime coach with Rambler Rising. So I'm going to let you describe some of your background, both as athlete and coach. Okay. I am just a lifetime athlete. I started as a swimmer, swam in college, um, and then got into triathlon, living in Boulder. You just Yuck. yeah, triathlon, triathlon I know. Um, no, I love triathlon. It's great. Um, but I realized, you know, raced professionally for about five years and then realized that I was a terrible runner and I just <laughs> didn't enjoy training running. And so um, I loved cycling and just made that transition over to the bike full time and um, have since, you know, raced on the road, but then have then moved to more of the gravel ultra endurance kind of thing, moving into bike packing. Um, and that's where my coaching company sits right now. So we coach everything from, you know, Ironman triathletes to, you know, tour divide bike packers, but it's certainly in that endurance realm and um, focuses mostly in the gravel world as well. Mm -hmm. And you've done well yourself in some racing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been second at Dirty Kanza before. I've podiumed there a couple of times. Um, yeah, it's kind of my claim to fame, but yeah, it's, you know, I love that scene. It's a great family and, you know, always happy to be back there. Excellent. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks. Welcome to Fast Talk. Yeah. And just for people that don't know, Kristen used to work with me back at Vela News maybe three, four years ago now. Yeah. So you may know her name from there as well. Yeah, definitely a, a gear nerd as well. I was an editor out there working on the tech side of things. So yeah, we, the, we had yeah. you on the show many years ago to talk right. about uh, different tires. That's, That's right. right. I you forgot did, we did the tech This isn't the first show. time you've been on Fast Yeah, Talk. right. It's been uh, too long. I forgot. You've forgotten about that. That was a, a really good episode. It's one I actually went, made one of my athletes listen to because I talked right. about tires. <laughs> And he just went, Trevor, you don't know. You're all wrong because he had some big misconceptions about mm -hmm. what are good. And so he was back in the, you need 19C tubular oh, tires, all that <laughs> oh, sort of stuff. So I'm like, boy. no. And he argued with me. I'm like, go listen to Kristen's episode. <laughs> she will tell you better than I can tell you. <laughs> right Excellent. On. Excellent. You'll notice we are now having two coaches for our Q&A. This was really important to, to Chris and I. Uh, we really like these Q&A episodes. We've been getting a lot of really good questions that we want to answer. But the one issue we've had with it is it's just me answering it. And even though I'm going to try to do my research and, and bring in some good information, at the end of the day, you're just getting my opinion. I think the best way to answer questions is to get multiple coaches, people of different backgrounds to come in and, and address these questions. And I hope as we go through these, that you're going to get the difference of opinions. That I might say something, and Kristen is going to go, no, I actually disagree. Here's my experience. Um, when you listen to our answers, there often isn't one answer, and that's why I want this, this disagreement. What's right for one person isn't right for another. So you should listen to the different answers, the different opinions, and try and then see which works for you. So moving ahead, I hope this uh, we've had our last Q&A that's just going to be me. Let's get into some questions, shall we? The first one comes from Devin Knickerbocker of Seattle, and it sort of pertains to the art of training, listening to your body, uh, and generally he wants guidance on something we've spoken about from time to time on the show, and that is the tactical choice of when to bail on a workout, when to reduce the intensity or the duration of a workout, or when to push through and gut it out. So there's actually a lot to unpack there. Let me start first with his specific question, and then we could get into it. He writes, if you are in, quote, gutted out mode, what cues or signals can I use to tell when I've done enough? Because this is not as clear as you might think. For example, I have had times where I had done objectively unsustainable training, but didn't feel tired on the bike and had no trouble hitting targets or personal bests even though, as I learned in hindsight, unfortunately, I was worn down and needed a break. 
I've also had times when I've felt much worse after rest weeks rather than better. It would be great to hear more about that, quote, when to pull the plug decision-making process. What do you guys think? I'm just going to start it out with a, a very broad response of, you're right, this is not simple. I would even say this knowing when to push, when to pull the plug, when to back down a little bit is the hardest thing in training. Mm. I, I would say this is the art of training and this is what separates a very high level experienced cyclist from somebody who's new to the sport, who's figuring out. Somebody who's new, they get a training plan, they're gonna do it regardless of how they feel. It takes a really experienced athlete to be able to differentiate those very minor feelings and experiences to say, yep, today it just hurts because it's supposed to hurt, I'm gonna push through versus today, it hurts because something's off. It's time to pull the plug and go home. So don't feel bad that you're sitting there going, I'm just not sure I still get it because some people never get it. it for the, the best, it takes years and years and years to figure this out. And the, the overall suggestion I'm going to get is take notes. Do these workouts. Sometimes you, you can notice certain sensations and Sometimes try pushing through it, sometimes not, and then see how your body responds over the next few days, and you're going to start getting the sense of, oh, I felt that way. I pushed through a workout. That didn't work for me. So next time I feel that way, I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And this can get really strange. I, one of my indicators, I've said this before on the show, when I'm starting to overreach, my forearms start to ache. <laughs> never known another person who's had this feeling and you i've it's, never it's read your, a study but it is my thing and if tell. i if i go out and i start doing work and my forearms are aching i'm like yep time to turn around and go wow. home interesting how long did it take you to understand that that was a cue it was actually for a bit of frustration for me because i'm like why the heck are my forearms hurting That's and i i to hurt. had no Physiological. So I spent a while trying to figure out the physiology behind it until I was finally like, that's not really what matters. What matters is every time I feel this way, I'm pushing, pushing overtraining, pushing overreach. So I might never figure out why, but stop. Yeah. It doesn't matter why necessarily right. in that case. It's just good indicator. Right. Listen to it. So that's kind of my, my overall, but maybe we dive into this. And Kristen, what are your thoughts about when to, to push through and when to pull the plug? Well, just to kind of build off of what you're talking about, I think having a good understanding of, of yourself and your training is the first place to start. So whether you're working with a coach or you're training yourself, knowing, you know, what are your macro cycle? Where are you in your macro cycle? Where are you in, even within your weekly cycle of training and knowing before you get on the bike, what is the purpose of that workout? Um, sometimes the purpose is to push yourself really hard and kind of dig yourself into that hole and have to come out of it. Um, and so if that's the case, then that's a great opportunity to, to gut it out and push through. If you're in a rest week and the, the whole goal of that week is to kind of build yourself back up and you're really struggling out there even just to hit your base, you know, power, that's a great sign that, hey, I need to stop or I need to pull the plug on this. So just having a good uh, feel for why you're out there and where you're at, like what should you be expecting, that's um, something to start with when making those decisions. We actually got a, a, an email question um, that we're not answering in this episode, but was similar where an athlete was really pushing for the interval should always just be as hard as you can possibly go. And, and we replied with a well, what's the purpose of the workout? There's actually interval work where you shouldn't be going as hard as you should go. You can go. You should be coming home saying, I have more left in the legs, but that wasn't what it was about. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, talking about different tells or, or ways to understand your body, um, for one thing that I work with a lot of athletes is, is paying attention to your mood. If you're you know, just dreading getting onto your bike and you just don't want to go out for that ride, that's something that could be a tell for people of, you know, I'm starting to overreach a little bit or I'm just pushing the, that limit a little bit too much um, because, you know, there's always days that we don't want to be on our bike and it's snowing out or raining out and we don't want to do that. But if you're really struggling with the motivation, I think that's a good way to kind of, it's a good time to check in with yourself and see where you're at and, and what you could be doing to reverse that. If I could give one starting point for athletes of be able to figure out 
when to push through and when not. It's quality. Whenever I give a, an interval workout to my athletes, I always have in the prescription something that allows them to determine if they are doing the intervals with sufficient quality. I actually give them power targets, less to say, here's what you're trying to accomplish, more to say, if you can't hit these numbers, you're probably too fatigued and you need to go home. Likewise, when I give my athletes hill repeats, my favorite way to do it is I have them use a starting point and a finishing point. So you do the first interval. If they can't keep hitting the same time on those intervals, stop. Because when you're fatigued, you can often push out one interval, but then you quickly decline. So if you do the hill repeat and you say, let's you say you do eight and a half minutes the first time up, and then the next time up, you're 850. And then for some reason you push through and the next time you're, you're 915, you shouldn't be doing this workout. Mm-hmm. So you really want to have that consistent time. And that also means be a little bit smart. That also helps athletes control it. If you go and crush the first interval. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that keeps you under control, but it's also that maintaining the quality. So if you're doing intervals and you can't, and look, you, you have good days, you have bad days. You might go out one day and do a banner workout and, and do all your intervals at, say, 320 watts, which you haven't seen before. That's no longer your new standard. That was just a really good workout. Right, yeah. So you, you have that range. But if you're going out and normally you're somewhere around 300 watts and you're struggling just to hit 270, it's probably time to go home. Yeah, that's a good sign. <laughs> What other indicators would you uh, would you give? Well, I think the heart rate is a really good opportunity. This is a good opportunity to look at your heart rate and start to understand how your heart rate changes with those efforts. When we're feeling bad, sometimes we can gut it out and still hit the power numbers, but that might not be the right thing that we should be doing that day. So um, one indicator for me is if you're doing some shorter efforts or even some longer efforts and you, you do the effort, you're hitting the power, okay, you're not feeling great. But then when you stop and your heart rate doesn't come back down as quickly as it normally does between during, during that rest time, that's a good indicator to me that maybe you, you know, you might need some more rest coming up or, you know, if it's really struggling to come down, then that might be a time to say, okay, this today, I just need to go pedal my bike easy. Um, so just, I think heart rate's important in this whole question because you can kind of fake the power sometimes and just make the numbers happen, but it might not be what, you know, you might not be actually working on the physiological stuff that you want to be because you're just too tired. Other things I have been told is my old coach, what he liked to do if he wanted to see if an athlete was too fatigued, is he would have them do a couple sprints. Because the first thing that disappears when you're starting to overreach is that neuromuscular power. Mm -hmm. So if you, let's say, you do sprints and you can normally pretty easily hit 1,000 watts, and you're going out, you're wondering if your legs are not great, and you do a quick sprint, and you're barely touching 700 watts. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're toast. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> don't, don't keep going. Other things I will bring up is I do find shorter intervals are harder to, are easier to fake. Right. Um, if you're fatiguing, believe it or not, even though something like Tabata's really hurts, you can usually push through them. You can push through that 30 second, 20 second type interval. Longer intervals are if you're really hurting and you try to go out and do a 15-minute threshold interval, you're going to know pretty quickly. Yeah, hard to fake it. Yeah. It's hard to fake. So be careful and don't do the, oh, I was going to do threshold intervals today and I couldn't hit my normal wattage, so I'll do some Tabatas because right. then I'm not going to see my fatigue. No. Don't, don't do that. Should someone faced with this choice, faced with this situation where they're not sure which way to go, should they err on the side of caution or not? Is it better to skip the workout if they have some doubt that they should be doing it or should they push through? Basically, if you skip the workout you are supposed to have on your training program, is that better because you don't get the training load you thought or push through it and hope that you don't sort of start going in the other direction and start overreaching? Does that make sense? 
So I'll start this out, and I really want to hear what you have to say, but I'm actually going to go back to what Kristen was saying right at the start of this, is, is know your purpose. So I will have weeks with my athletes where I want them to fatigue. I want it to be tough. Uh, in those cases, if they go out and it's not feeling great, like let's say they're doing a training camp and they're the fourth day of the training camp and they're feeling pretty bad, my response is, yeah, suffer, push through it. As a matter of fact, I've, now that Zwift exists, I love to get my athletes on a training camp on like the fourth day. I'm like, go into Zwift and try to survive a race. <laughs> that's horrible. Really mean, but yeah. I'm like, a lot of them are doing stage races. I'm like, that's what the fourth, fifth day of a stage race feels like. So you got to do this because, yeah, that, that's, that's part of the training. Uh, if you are doing that every week, something's wrong. So typical weeks, if you go out and you're not feeling great. I am much more for the intervals. You shouldn't be doing intervals every day. You should be doing intervals maybe just a couple times a week. Um, so you want to do them with quality. So if you're going out and you're not feeling up to it, yeah, you can do the macho, I'm going to push through and show how tough I am. My response is more, why not just move it to tomorrow, get some rest today, and do a really high-quality workout tomorrow? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that you are one to err on the side of caution, if you will, to in a general sense. Yes. I, I'm more the, the way I look at it is I want the intervals to be as high quality as possible. I, I would rather see an athlete, I would rather reschedule or rework an athlete's week and get that really high quality interval session than have them dogmatically follow a plan that you put together on Monday that was you know, whenever you put together a week plan, it's a guess. Mm -hmm. You don't know what night they're not going to get sleep. You don't know what's going to happen in their life on Thursday or Friday that's going to affect their interval work. So I'm much more for be flexible with the week. But let's, you know, I would rather say come out of the week, go, we didn't follow the original plan, but I got two really good interval sessions in. Then I followed the plan, but boy, that interval session on Thursday, I was dogging it. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Like I tend to err on the side of caution, and it's it's better. To, I'd always rather have an athlete be like a little bit undertrained than just really push to overtrain them. Um, so if that means not doing that that session that day, and then maybe building up a different day where you just add some extra time onto a, a long ride or do something else to kind of make up for that um, later in the week, I think that's good. But I also um, one thing I always talk about with my athletes is that training isn't just uh, a physiological thing. It's not just trying to make yourself a stronger athlete. It training is, is all, you know, it's working your mind as well and learning how to push through those times when you're not feeling good on the bike. Cause you might r wake up on race morning and not feel good, but that doesn't mean that you can't perform well. So there is like, again, this is just going back and forth on, it depends. Right. Um, but there is value in pushing through when you're not feeling good and then realizing that, you know, you can still make it happen. And this is where we talk about when is it similar for pros and amateurs and when is it different? And this is one of the places where I differentiate a bit. When you have a top pro, they're training 25 hours a week. They actually don't have a lot of opportunity to adjust. And for the most part, you talk to any pro, they're going to tell you, look, I'm always fatigued. Yeah. <laughs> I am always tired, you know, and they're doing everything possible to recover so that they can do the next day's workout. So when I am coaching a pro who's doing that level of work, it's a little more of suck it up and do it, buddy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's what racing is like. When you are training eight to 10 hours per week, you have that little more flexibility to say, legs aren't good today. I'm just going to do a recovery ride and I'll do the intervals tomorrow. On the whole, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know. I wanted to say a lot of people. I don't know if it's a lot of people. But it seems like a lot of people have this idea that if they skip a workout, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. I'm going to lose all my fitness. I'm on my back foot. I'm not going to win a race again. You know, like they, they overreact to missing a workout or even a week of riding. Maybe they are having to travel for business. Maybe they've got a big... Uh, project at work and they're eating crappy food all week uh, and they just don't feel like getting out on the bike and they're like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. But it's really not true. And I don't know how that plays into this conversation, but 
maybe maybe if you want to address that, you can. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a long conversation in itself, but part of what I'm going to... We could certainly go into the whole, uh, you know, what declines and how rapidly it declines. And I still remember my exercise physiology course, reading the chapter in McArdle, where they talked about this. And McArdle had this basically, after four days, you are completely out of shape <laughs> type approach. And what I have learned over the years is is what was in that textbook was a, a little alarmist mm -hmm. and, and not true. Actually, you maintain fitness better than that. Part of what I think makes people believe this, besides just we, we, we tend to all be type A's who want to yeah. work and not, not stop, is going back to that whole idea of a peak is, part of what a peak is about is just getting those natural painkillers flowing. And we all love that feeling. And one thing that does happen when you take a few days off the bike is those painkillers disappear. And you start feeling all those little aches and pains right. and inflammation a little bit more. So most athletes, if you've been a cyclist for, or an endurance athlete for more than a year, you've probably had that experience of, hey, I was feeling great. Then I took a few days off. And then I felt like crap on the bike. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. I hate that feeling. I lost all my fitness. I, I don't want to feel that again. Actually, you didn't lose all your fitness. Actually, the reality is... At the end of that four days when you were feeling awful, you were probably stronger than you were when you were feeling good. It's just the painkillers were gone. Right. But it allowed your body to rebuild and mm -hmm. adapt. And that's the problem. Recovery, when you rebuild and adapt, you're going to come out of it actually feeling a little bit lousy. Mm -hmm. And then you start doing some work, then the painkillers get flowing again, and then you're, you're strong. So I see a lot of athletes who really plateau because they get their body in this mode of the body's just trying to keep it together with duct tape and chewing gum, constantly keeping those painkillers flowing. So you go, well, I feel kind of good, but I'm never that strong because you're never actually allowing that recovery and, and adaptation. And that's a really good thing to remember for when you're tapering or resting into an event is that a lot of times people talk about feeling really sluggish in their taper and they, they get really nervous and they say, oh, I'm getting out of shape and they start working harder, you know, leading into the race. And it's, it's just that feeling of that sluggishness. And then as long as you can go and do, you know, some openers a couple of days beforehand, just kind of get that, that feeling back, um, you're going to be stronger and be able to race much faster. But um, it's just, it's kind of counterintuitive. You think you should be feeling better with more rest. They did actually a really great study looking at Olympians. So Olympians are actually meddled and looked at how they tapered for their event. And it was very contrary to what you see in the literature of here's what we think is the optimal taper, because most of the literature talks about really resting right up before the event, but they're not factoring in that whole painkillers are clearing out, you're going to feel flat. So I will tell you, worst way to taper, take four days off before you race and then try to race. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. You're going to feel awful. So what they saw when they looked at how these Olympians were actually doing it was two weeks before their event is when they took a bunch of days off and really rested. And then the week the five, six days leading up to the event, they actually didn't take a single day off. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea was, had the recovery, let the body rebuild two weeks before the event, but then you need that week to get the painkillers flowing again so that you not only are rested and recovered, you're also feeling really good. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, the first week back from a, from a rest week by, you know, you're maybe feeling a little sluggish Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but by the weekend, like those are some of the best workouts I see are those, is that like seven days later, right? right. So exactly. When I give an athlete a, a week off, I'll have them do their first interval session and they always, or not always, but I often get that, oh, I feel really rejected, dejected. I did that big training camp, then I took a week off and I'm not any stronger and it felt awful. I'm like, wait till the next one. Right. Yeah. And then a few days later, they do their next interval. Like, wow, that felt great. The numbers were incredible. You go, right. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to our next question, shall we? Yep. It is about glute for transporters, Trevor. You know glute for transporters like the back of your hand. So let's get into Carrie Blackburn's question, shall we? I think, in fact, before I even ask the question, 
it's worth reminding or familiarizing our listeners with what the GLUT4 glut transporter is, what it does, and why it's important in endurance training like cycling. Is that something we should uh, get into, an overview here? Okay, so GLUT4 stands for Glucose Transporter 4. There are actually many glucose transporters in the body. I think there's 14 of them. But number four is a really key one, uh, particularly when we're talking about exercise because it is used in striated muscle cells and in adipose tissue. Mm -hmm. So it is very important for transporting glucose when we are exercising. So bear in mind, our bodies like to very tightly regulate the level of glucose in our bloods. All of us have had the experience of a drop in blood sugar. Bonking. Which, or when you really have it bad, you pretty much have to lie down and the whole world <laughs> spins and it's a really unpleasant experience. Yeah. So that is one of the things that our bodies like to tightly control. Problem is most of the cells in our body like to use glucose and like to take it up. If every cell in our body just had full access to the glucose in our blood, it would quickly get sucked up and we would die. It's not a good thing. This is why we have 14 of these transporters so that our body has a remarkable ability to control what can take up glucose at what time. GLUT4 is not always at, I should have said this to start, it is not always at the surface of the cells. Most of the time it actually exists inside the cytosol of the cell where it can't transport glucose. It needs something to activate it so it goes to the surface of the cell and then allows the cell to take sugar, glucose, out of the blood. There are two things that activate GLUT4. One is insulin, mm -hmm. and the other one is actually muscle contractions. So let's talk about insulin. Let's say you eat a big meal. It's got a lot of carbohydrates in it, so your body takes up a whole bunch of, of sugar. Now you have too high a blood sugar level, and your body likes to tightly control it. It doesn't want that, so it releases insulin. Insulin gets a lot of these tissues, particularly your muscles, which is a whole lot of the, the mass in your body. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets them to send the GLUT4 to the surface of the cell, Muscles take up the blood, the sugar out of the blood and gets your blood sugar back to the range it wants to be at. Your muscles then say, thank you. They take that glucose, go, don't need it right now. They convert it to glycogen and store it. As an athlete, this is a really good thing. When you are exercising, again, your muscles need glucose, particularly your big anaerobic fibers they need it to, for glycolysis. So what happens is as your muscles are contracting, I'm going to try not to go too deep into the physiology, but I think everybody at this point knows what ATP is. That's actually ultimately our, our body's only usable form of energy, meaning glucose, fat, protein are all converted eventually to ATP or the energy is from uh, glucose, fat, and protein is stored in ATP and then your body uses ATP for all the processes in the body. When it uses ATP for energy, the ATP becomes ADP and our cells monitor the balance between ATP and ADP. So when ATP starts to drop and ADP starts to go up, which happens when your muscles contract, that actually causes GLUT4 to go to this, uh, the surface of the cells and start taking up sugar to start taking up glucose. Are you following this, Carrie? Have I completely lost everybody no, or is no, this it, all it, making this is, sense? This is, a good, this is a good overview of what we're talking about here. Absolutely. So those are the two ways that GLUT4 can get to the surface of the cells. Now also remember what you don't want is having insulin flowing and muscle contraction sending the GLUT4 to the surface of the cell because then you get kind of this hyperdrive of GLUT4 everywhere, then you take up too much glucose. And in sports, it's referred to as reactive hypoglycemia. So that's caused if you say 45 minutes before an event, mm -hmm. 
eat a whole bunch of sugary, high-carbohydrate foods, and then you hop into your vent and start exercising really hard, now you're sending GLUT4 to the surface of the muscle cells because of the contractions. You had enough time before the activity to raise insulin levels, so now you're getting that double whammy and your blood sugar is going to drop. So you want to be careful about eating anything with a lot of sugar in it about an hour to 45 minutes before an event if you are somebody who suffers from reactive hypoglycemia. So when we exercise, the insulin response gets blunted, and there's a reason for that because your muscles are now being really hungry for glucose. They're going to take up a lot of glucose. So at this point, you don't want other cells in the body to take up glucose, and insulin doesn't differentiate too much. It basically tells all the cells and all the muscle cells, all the adipose tissue, hey, take up, take up mm -hmm. the glucose. So mm -hmm. you blunt the insulin and basically say, just muscles that are working right now are going to get the glucose. Anything I didn't cover? Well, let me ask Carrie's question. I think you may have answered it, but let, it might spur some other questions here or, or, or more, more nuanced answer. All right. So let me ask Carrie's question. On a recent episode, you spoke about the GLUT4 transporter being, quote, activated when you exercise. Is there an intensity or duration threshold for this to occur? And if so, does anyone know what it is? So I did sort of answer that. So remember I said muscle contraction causes that change in the balance between ATP and ADP. Mm -hmm. And that then promotes GLUT4 to go to the surface of the cell and take up sugar. So quite frankly very little activity is going to start that process. It is not an on-off switch. It's not like all of a sudden your muscles go, okay, get that glute forward to the surface. Let's start taking up sugar. It is more a, a gradation. So as you go harder and start recruiting more muscle fibers, then you're going to have more muscle fibers that are getting the higher levels of ADP that are going to promote glute forward to the cells. So harder you go, the, the more promotion of GLUT4 that you're going to have. Also remember that there is that recruitment principle where if you're going relatively easy, you're first just going to recruit slow-twitch muscle fibers. Slow-twitch muscle fibers are mostly they're, they're aerobic. They mostly rely on fat for fuel. They don't use a lot of glucose, so they aren't going to take up a lot. They're, they don't have high needs. It's as you start going harder, then you start recruiting the fast twitch muscle fibers, which are very demanding for glucose. They like their glucose. They, they like their anaerobic glycolysis. So they are going to start demanding that glucose. They're going to start pumping a lot of GLUT4 to the surface of the cell. Well, that actually leads pretty well into our next question, which has to do with the ketogenic diet. This is a, we have a, a few questions from Don Kupens. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. He's from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. He's referring back to our episode with Professor Noakes. That was episode 46, all about the ketogenic diet. Let's take these one at a time, shall we? First, he asks, at one point in the episode, Professor Noakes recalls a quote about Chris Froome's diet and says, there is no such thing as a high-protein diet. Why not? Why does this episode only make the distinction between high-fat and high-carb diets? Let me first just give my bias, which is I think there are health benefits to the ketogenic diet in the short run, especially if you are dealing with things like cancer or Alzheimer's disease. I would actually encourage people to try a more ketogenic or at least a, a low-carbohydrate approach. As a long-term nutritional approach, I do not think it is healthy. It is impossible to get the micronutrients that you need on a ketogenic diet, and it is going to lead to issues, particularly, and this has been shown in the research, long-term ketogenic diets lead to, uh, to bone mineral density loss. So it can basically cause osteoporosis. So I do not encourage anybody to eat a ketogenic diet long-term. Long term. So with that said, why do we only talk about a high-carb versus a high-fat diet? There is uh, something called rabbit starvation. Yes, I knew this was coming. <laughs> oh, yeah, he knew. <laughs> rabbit starvation, what a good term. 
<laughs> the name for it comes from some of the original explorers coming to North America who came to the more northern latitudes where they discovered, hey, not a lot of fruits and vegetables around here. We pretty much have to live on animals. Mm -hmm. And they made the mistake of trying to live on small animals, hence rabbit starvation. The smaller the animal, the less fat it has, the more it's just lean protein. And what they discovered was these explorers, even though they felt like they were eating enough, were dying. And this is the rabbit starvation. The reason for this is we have a limited capacity to produce urea. So when we break down proteins, we have to produce urea to get rid of that nitrogen. And we can only do so much. So there is a limit on how much protein we can eat um, which is uh, anything above about 40% by calorie. And remember, protein is high, pretty, pretty high density in terms of calories. Doesn't take a lot of lean meat before you are starting to push rabbit starvation. So continuing with giving you this little bit of, uh, of, of history. So when you were dealing with hunter-gatherer societies, especially ones that lived in very northern or very uh, southern latitudes, uh, they had a couple options here. One was, so again, they could only eat so much protein. So two ways to solve that. There was multiple ways to solve that, but really the, the two that they look at the most in the research are either dramatically increase your plant mm -hmm. consumption, which if you look at more uh, equatorial societies, people live closer to the, the equator and lived in warmer latitudes with a lot of plant food, that tended to be their solution. So you saw them eating a, a lot more plant food so that they never overate protein. Uh, when you looked at those more polar societies, what they tended to do was focus on large animals. Larger the animal, the more fat mass it had. Mm -hmm. And they would eat the whole animal. So what they would end up doing is eating a, a very high fat diet. You never saw a really high carbohydrate diet, but when you were talking about people at the, the poles, or sorry, at the more equatorial, they tended to eat a higher carbohydrate diet to keep the, the, the protein down. Another really interesting fact is what you saw in analyses of all these hunter-gatherer societies was their consumption of land-based animals is very consistent, all the way from the equator to the poles. Um, so what you saw as you got closer to the poles, they ate less plant food, more fish, which tended to be very high fatty and good healthy fat type food. That kind of gets at the, you could only eat so much protein, so you either increased carbohydrate consumption or you increased fat consumption. To get those ratios in a, in a good mix. Right. So hence, we can really only talk about a high carbohydrate or high fat diet. You can't really talk about a high protein diet because if you do that, you're not going to like the results. Mm -hmm. Second question from Dan. Does a high fat or ketogenic pathway mean that during exercise, athletes lose the ability to produce energy anaerobically because there is no glucose for anaerobic glycolysis. Does the possible lack of anaerobic glycolysis mean that no lactate is produced? Okay, so this is a complex question or a complex answer. I'm going to try to give you a bit of a simplified answer to this. Remember, there are multiple places in the body where we store glycogen. And the two main places are your muscles. So any of your, your striated muscles, actually I think all your muscle tissue will store glycogen. Your liver also stores glycogen. And your liver basically stores it to, its job is to make sure that it keeps your blood sugar levels high enough. Um, liver storage isn't that high. You basically deplete it almost every night when you sleep. So not too hard to deplete it. You go into ketosis when you have depleted your liver glycogen, not when you have depleted all of your glycogen. And the thing that I want to look into, and I, I'm 
My guess is there probably isn't research on this because of ethical concerns. My guess is you, if you depleted your liver glycogen and your muscle glycogen, you're probably going to die. <laughs> it's not something you ever want to do. So don't think when they're talking about ketosis and depleting your glycogen, we're talking about all glycogen in the body. One of the things that happens that I did re research last night is when you start depleting your, your liver glycogen and your liver now goes, okay, I need to start addressing this, I, I'm depleted, uh, it ramps up both ketone production and gluconeogenesis, which is production of glucose. Problem is your, your liver isn't very good at converting fat and protein to, to glucose. It's actually very, very slow. It's an inefficient process. So it couldn't keep up with the demands by just converting everything to glucose. So it produces both ketones and glucose. Then what happens is your body kind of goes into this glycogen sparing mode. Not so much in the liver, more in the muscles. So again, you don't want to be depleting all glycogen. That's a bad place to be. So it's going to start preferentially using fats and, and using ketone bodies for fuel over glucose. Going back to the question, does this mean that you no longer do anaerobic glycolysis? My understanding, and I, I would say, particularly look at a lot of the research of Dr. Hawley, who has a very different opinion from Dr. Noakes, and it is quite interesting, the two of them used to do a lot of research together. I think what happens at this point is, again, glycogen isn't depleted, so your muscles will still do some anaerobic glycolysis, but it's going to push in the direction of sparing. So try to burn more fat for fuel. And what you've seen in his recent research is athletes tend at lower intensities to be just fine uh, because they're really going to rely on, on ketones and fat and the more aerobic pathways. It's when you get to the really high intensity, all of a sudden you go, yeah, I just don't have that in the legs. And that's, again, because your body is trying to prevent you from depleting that glycogen in the muscles. So kind of a complex answer, but the short version is, no, you haven't completely depleted that glycogen. No, you are still producing some lactate, but your body is heading in the direction of trying to spare, so it's going to limit your ability to do that. Mm -hmm. Kristen, you're an athlete that now does really long stuff in, in the relative to what most people do. You're, you've done DKXL, which is 350 miles a couple times now. You've done some other really long stuff. You work with athletes that are also doing this type of stuff. Have you personally experimented with ketogenic diet? Have you worked with athletes who have experimented with a ketogenic diet? And what have they, what have you seen? Yeah. Um, I personally haven't. I just know my, how my body works and, um, it, uh, I just know that I thrive on a higher carbohydrate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ride cookies are my jam. Um, no, I just, uh, you know, from years of experience, I just know that, like that probably wouldn't work super well for me, just how my stomach reacts to, you know, high fat, high protein diets. Um, but uh, it is actually a really hot topic right now in the endurance world. And especially when you're talking about like tour divide, where you're out there for, you know, 15 to 25 days. And not only that, but you're, you're going at a, you know, a more aerobic pace, um, as well as you have to carry all of the food on your bike for long sections of trail. So if you can just eat, you know, straight up peanut butter, or, you know, there's people who carry sticks of butter with them. And that's, and they, you know, you get a lot of energy out of that. It's maybe not the most appetizing thing to think about while you're riding your bike. But um, so I have seen it work. Um, I agree with Trevor that uh, as a long-term diet and life choice, I don't think it's potentially the most, like the healthiest thing to choose for yourself. Um, but in short stints, I think if you're if you practice with it enough and you start to understand how your body reacts to that i think it can be beneficial but you just really have to understand what is um 
what kind of pacing are you going to be doing out there? Um, and how do you, how quickly can you recover from harder efforts? Because as slow as we want to go, you know, there are going to be times where you have to get up and over a hill and you're going to have to tap into some of that, um, you know, higher intensity work. So again, it's just, it's, it comes down to every single athlete is going to react differently. So testing it out ahead of time, um, and seeing what works and then how to, again, how to recover from any kind of spike. Dan actually had a, a final question here that we can touch upon briefly. Does a ketogenic diet induce ketoacidosis in humans? So really important to understand that ketosis and ketoacidosis are two very different things. Ketosis, well, we can have the discussion about whether that's healthy in the long run is still a natural state for the body. To explain ketoacidosis, let me just go back to what I said before, which is don't think that when you are in ketosis, there is now no longer any glycogen or glucose in your body and you're completely surviving on fat. It's not that simple. You still have glycogen stores. Your body is still producing glucose. You still have an insulin response. Um, that is not what ketosis is. It's not that dramatic. Uh, ketoacidosis is when it starts getting out of control. So it's kind of interesting these two questions relate. We were just talking before about GLUT4 and taking up sugar into glucose into the cells. So insulin is designed, it's released to get blood sugar levels down. When you have very low levels of insulin in your body or your body can't respond to insulin, your body thinks, uh-oh, my blood sugar levels are too low. I need to get them up. So it then goes to the liver and says, so a couple things start happening. First, your body goes, okay, we need to start sparing glucose to so start pumping out fat so we can use that for fuel. And then it tells the liver, okay, start producing, get, get the gluconeogenesis revved up, start producing glucose, start producing ketone bodies because we need to do everything possible here to spare our glucose. Now, again, somebody who's healthy, you're never going to see insulin levels get that low. So when you are dealing with something like diabetes, you are now essentially going outside of your body's normal range for insulin. Um, you are going down, you're, either you are at a pathologically low level of insulin, or again, essentially a simulation of that where you're producing the insulin, but your body just can't respond to it. Mm -hmm. So your body goes into hyperdrive of start pumping out the ketones, start pumping out, you know, rev up that gluconeogenesis, and the liver just starts pushing out glucose, starts pushing out ketone bodies. And then you see an overly high level of ketone bodies, which can lead to acidosis, hence the name, because ketones are an acid. Interestingly, the other thing is now you have excess glucose in the blood, which your body's trying to get rid of. Your kidneys, to deal with that, to get rid of that glucose, needs to take up a lot of uh, water, uh, and it can actually lead to dehydration. And the combination of the acidosis and the dehydration can kill you if you don't regulate this. But again, that is pathological. That is getting outside of your normal levels for insulin uh, or your body's response to it. You can't simulate that with diet. Our next question comes from Peter Stewart of Atlanta, who sent us this voice memo. Coach Trevor, Connor, and Chris, this is Peter from Atlanta. I'm a 40-year-old master racer who enjoys vacations at altitude and would like to target some Grand Fondo gravel or endurance uh, mountain bike events in one of these locations. Could you cover some tips for training for an altitude event while at lower elevation? And perhaps specifically, if you've prepared like you would for a similar event at sea level, how do you transfer that preparation and strategy elevation when you're only there for a week or two. Uh, thank you for your insight. Kristen, maybe we'll start with you this time. What do you think here? I think I can do that. Starting from a, a more holistic picture and again, just thinking about the, the big picture, 
going into an an event at altitude as well prepared and trained as you possibly can is going to help you out. You like like any other event, you want to just be at the top of your game. Um, but because you're going to altitude and your power is going to drop. Um, you, again, just want your body to be in its best possible shape to be able to um, deal with that altitude as best as it can. Minimize the impact. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, continuing to train like you would for any big event um, and just focusing on that, but then also thinking about, like, what is your race plan and spending maybe more time thinking about that plan ahead of time than you might if it's, you know, your local road race that you kind of know those roads and those climbs. Um, you know, thinking of altitude, I always jump to like a Leadville type of event. Um, and so thinking about those specific climbs, how steep they are, what power levels can you actually sustain during those climbs, and then realizing you're going to be at, you know, 10,000 feet. So then uh, lowering that power to accommodate that change in altitude so that when you do get there and you get really excited to be in the race, you don't just go, you know, all out to start and then realize you're going to have to suffer for a long time to come back from that. So from from the start, it's just making that plan, sitting down and really examining the course and figuring out, you know, how to um, minimize the, the effects of altitude while you're there. Is there any either rule of thumb or even a, a chart that says, okay, I live at zero feet and I'm going to a race at, that is on average 8,000 feet. So my power will be reduced by X percentage. If not, can you calculate that for us right now, Trevor? Precisely the amount of power that I need to beat you on a climb. <laughs> How's that for a chart? 475 watts for Damn you. 27 minutes. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, no, I'm joking. There is no chart, and part of the reason there's no chart, and there's essentially no one rule, is because there are different ways that people respond. You can go in one of a couple different directions. So we can't make a rule. You know, there's people who simply don't respond, called altitude non-responders. There are people who respond by really upping their, their aerobic pathways. There are people who respond by upping their anaerobic pathways, their ability to tolerate that. And then you also see more on the response on, on the efficiency side. So it's made it really hard to study altitude because you get a mix of these people and then you, they keep coming out with studies going, well, we just can't really find a, a rule here. Yeah. And, and we talked about some of those things in a, in a recent Q&A episode. I'm curious if there are anything specific you can recommend for a person to do differently where they're training, where they live at sea level to, in order to prepare for the race at altitude. So what about things like hyperbaric chambers, altitude chambers? Is there any reason that people should build one in their garage or use one of these things? Kristen? Well, I think they're they're pretty unrealistic for the day-to-day -day life of, you know, unless you're a committed athlete that is going to stay home 24-7 for a long time, <laughs> um, that you have to spend a significant amount of each day at altitude to start getting those benefits um, of altitude training. So you'd have to ride your bike inside that garage. You'd have to sleep in that garage. You'd have to eat in that garage. So unless you're planning to do something drastic like that, I don't think it's actually really worth the the effort to, to you know, get an altitude tent and set it up in your bedroom. Anything, anything you'd like to add, Trevor? I have seen friends experiment with it. Mm -hmm. And I have seen as many absolutely destroy their season as I've seen it help. Okay. So I'm, I'm not a, a huge fan of it. Uh, I just, I think you're going to say the same thing. I don't think there's anything different you can do at sea level besides just try to get as fit as you can. No extra big gear work because you might be grinding more or no, nothing. It's just get, get in tip top shape Try and to go out doing your intervals, breathing through a straw, go for it. But <laughs> they do make those, those masks. And uh -huh. have you experimented with those? No, I've seen those. I think they're, they're definitely interesting. Um, 
back when I was swimming, I was a pretty competitive swimmer in high school and I had a, an amazing coach um, here in Colorado. And we used to swim with snorkels quite a bit. And he would tape half of our snorkel off. So it would really restrict the That sounds the like an ethical disaster. I know. I, I don't want to say too much out there. because What was this get, guy's name? Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> You know, there's there's always things that you can try like that. But I agree with Trevor. Like you're just you're asking to ruin your season by doing something silly and just digging yourself too deep into a hole rather than, you know, just focus on getting yourself as fit as possible. And think about getting yourself a well-rounded athlete. So working all the systems, making sure you're strong, you're resilient um, and you're you know, you're going to go into that race and, and be more successful than if you change up your life completely. You look at the research, if there's any recommendation they generally have, it's the live high, train low. Because when you do intervals at altitude, your power's lower. You don't get as high quality in intervals. So if you can do it, live somewhere that's high altitude. So you, you get the physiological response to altitude, but then go somewhere at a lower altitude and do high quality intervals. So. If you take that recommendation and think about wearing this mask at sea level, well, you don't get the adaptations of living at altitude, but you are making sure that you get the negative side effect of not being able to do your intervals with quality. So you are getting the double whammy of not what you want as opposed to what you want. So I, I would think my personal feeling is that's a bad approach. I have a, a question off of that to see. I just am curious what your thoughts are. Um, some reading that I've done about this actually comes from Dr. Stacy Sims. And so she talks a little bit about how heat training can somewhat, you know, it's not it's not a true altitude training supplement, but you can help kind of boost red blood cell production. So doing something, what she calls uh, permissive dehydration, where, and this is again something I would recommend people only do with coach or a doctor and really think about the long-term effects of what you're trying to do here. But you basically go out for a bike ride, you come back, you're somewhat dehydrated already from just riding and then you get into a sauna for 30 minutes no drinking you don't do that and you eventually you build up that 30 minutes so you can start shorter and then so that's again that's just dehydrating your body more and more and more and then over the next three to four or five hours you gradually rehydrate so you don't just go and pound a bunch of water right away um, but what that's trying to do is it signals the blood is going towards your skin during during that time in the sauna to help you sweat and release some of that heat. And so things like your, you know, your other organs are signaling saying, hey, I need blood. And so your body is, you know, spurred to, to make more blood cells. So you're in, in a way you're increasing that blood production, which is a similar situation that happens when you're at altitude training and your body starts to make more blood so it can transport oxygen more efficiently. So you know, this is something that I have not personally tried, and it's something that I think it makes sense. But I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant on like the the whole dehydration thing. Again, is what are the negative effects that are going to happen to your body, and is that going to negate any possible change you might get in more blood production? I'm the same as you. Of you're running a risk. You, if you're already training really hard and have yourself on the edge and then you throw in some intentional dehydration, that could be the thing that takes you over the edge. Yeah. Interestingly, before I really got into reading the research and seeing what physiologists were doing, I was very into the, what are all these little tricks that you can use? Like go and do hill climbs wearing a garbage bag to get that, <laughs> that, that heat oh, adaptation. Man, you, I wish you still did that actually. All these, that. all these little tricks that we talk about. And interestingly, as I read more and more of the science and I've seen teams, high level teams, national teams experiment with all this stuff, the more I have tended towards with all these things, just train your best build the best engine you can, and then let your body deal with the event. And these little tricks... Gimmicks. They are gimmicks that every once in a while they work for the most part. But it's not worth it. It's yeah, just I mean, we not heard, worth it. We heard from Max Chance in his uh, episode trying to get into the sauna, right? And, and look at him. He, he's not any better than he was 10 years ago. There are so many oh, Max Chance that's jokes that's that we can crack here. <laughs> Poor Max. He's not even in the room. I'm yeah. sorry, Max. I take it back. <laughs> but we still have to make fun of Max. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Max somewhere actually right now is just smiling, going, ooh. They're talking <laughs> there was about a laugh it. at my expense. I'm <laughs> yeah. happy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. Heckle That's me. very true. So my recommendation is just train as best you can at sea level and then come up and deal with the race. And the, the only things I will point out are if there's any rules about how we adapt to altitude is that there is a short-term adaptation where basically your body just builds your tolerance for, for anaerobic metabolism. Then there is a lull where your body goes, whoa, you're not leaving altitude, so I better do a better long-term solution. And that's actually when you're at your worst. And then you start seeing the, the long-term adaptation. So what you want to be careful about is arriving, not arriving at altitude at a where you hit your race right at that lull. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Which is like kind of the perfect timing for when you typically show up for a race, like a couple of days out. Right. right. So it's, yeah, you are right about your worst, depending on the person, somewhere around four to seven days out. So what they're actually now recommending to people is either go to altitude several weeks before your event. Or the day before. Or the day before. Yeah, as short as you can possibly make it. Peter, I hope that helps. It wasn't maybe the answer you were looking for. We bashed on hyperbaric chambers, all these other things that you were probably hoping to go out and buy or build in your garage, but it doesn't sound like they're all that effective. So one of the reasons we also brought Kristen on the show is we got this great question from Taylor in Omaha. She feels like she's sort of reached her limit when it comes to her training, but she asks, is there one thing I can do to improve my time at long gravel races? What is it that I can do? So Kristen, in your experience in your coaching business with Rambler Rising, what is the advice you offer people in in, in in this regard. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, gravel racing is a huge topic, but, um, you know, and there's, there's plenty of things that we can be doing every day to make ourselves faster and fitter and, and, um, be able to take some of that time off during our, uh, during our races. But I think the easiest way to do, to go faster without actually even having to work harder at all is to minimize your stops during these races. Um, you know, we can be out at Dirty Kansas for, you know, for some people can go be out there for 10 hours. Some other people are going to be out there for 20 hours. Um, the, the more you can minimize how much you, uh, stop during those races, you're going to be able to shed so much time, um, and make yourself a lot faster. And you're talking, sorry to interrupt, but you're talking not necessarily stopping fewer times necessarily, but the times that you do stop making it instead of a half an hour of crunching on chips and (laughs) drinking ginger ale to making it three minutes or somewhere less. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there's both sides of that. Um, the better you are at eating while you're riding so that you don't have to stop to open your packages or stop to switch your bottles around. That's the first thing. So become comfortable eating while you're moving. Um, we always say slow miles are better than no miles. So as long as you can just keep rolling along while you're opening those packages or doing whatever you need to, the better. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest time save is going to be during those checkpoint times. So where you're, you know, you're riding in, you have to find your support crew or, you know, a bag that you've dropped or even just a neutral support figuring out like what drinks they have and where is the different food is. The faster you can get through those checkpoints, the faster you're going to finish the race. Free time. Yeah. Exactly. And it can add up to an it's an huge. hour or hours, yeah. depending on the, the length of the race, the number of stops yeah. and so forth. And, you know, it's all about momentum. So if you sit down and you start to relax, it's going to be a lot harder to get back up and keep going, especially the later in the race you get. Um, so just keep moving. But the, the biggest thing, I think, is planning ahead of time and practicing those systems. So, you know, whether you're doing a triathlon and you have your, your transition area or you're doing, you know, Dirty Kanza and you have your checkpoint areas – going like actually physically going through the process of those checkpoints during a general ride that you do is really important. So take your, take your stuff out onto a road in the back of your car and do a big lap, come through when you're tired, when you're not, you know, maybe super fresh and go through the process of what do I do first? What do I do second? You know, should you refill your water bottles first and then grab your food? And then should you lube your chain or, you know, go to the bathroom, whatever that, you know, whatever system you create, 
going through the process of doing that multiple times is going to make it so much easier during the race where you're already going to be frantic because you're in a race. There's a, you know, a thousand people around you and you've been out riding for however many hours in the hot that you, you, you know, your brain doesn't work super well at that point. So creating those systems and, and practicing that is going to make uh, that whole situation go a lot faster and a lot smoother. You're not going to ride off without that sandwich that you've... You hope. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. hope. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, just practicing that. And, um, and then I, like the last thing on all of that is if it is a a situation where you have your support crew out there for you, go through that process with your support crew. Make sure they know what the process is and also know what, how to gently nudge you to go a little mm. faster or to get out of that checkpoint area. Um, so Are my, swears allowed or swears not allowed? Exactly. Like, how do you work? Because some people work great. I mean, I don't think swearing at your support crew or having them swear <laughs> at you is ever going to yeah, be a sure. positive. My best year at Dirty Kanza, my husband was was pitting for me and he purposefully took all of the chairs out of our little area and like opened the cooler so there was just absolutely no space for me to sit down somewhere you know and so it was just thinking through some of that stuff where um, if you don't have that opportunity to stop or to slow down that much you'll, you'll just keep going because you know might as well just get on my bike and keep rolling um, so yeah so I think stop less that's how you can go faster. Mm -hmm. Going back to one of the earlier points you made, and this is something I ask because a lot of us who've ridden bikes a lot, it's an innate thing. We don't even think about it. Some of the clients you have may be a little newer to the sport, so maybe you've had to think about this. How do you ride your bike and eat and drink at the same time without falling off? Practice. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think just practicing it from the time you start riding your bike. I mean, we can all be better at, you know, can you sit up on your bike with no hands if you need to open something with both hands? Um, and then doing that kind of thing on gravel, doing that thing on gravel when there's wind. Um, all of these different things you can practice to just become better at it. Um, one of the big things we always tell is uh, just any food that you have planned to eat, open those wrappers before you even get on the bike or have them in your checkpoint already open. You know, during road races, same thing. It doesn't have to be gravel. Um, just try and think through, try and do less while you're racing. The less your brain has to focus on taking care of yourself, the more it can focus on going faster. Thanks for joining us today, Kristen. That yeah. was fun. Thanks for having me. It's good having you. Yeah. Hopefully we can get you on again. Yeah, for sure. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. Find us on social media. We're at Real Fast Labs. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Kristen Legan, coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.